Well, good morning, uh, good afternoon, or I guess good evening, depending on when you are watching this. Uh, if you have a Bible within reach, why don't you go ahead and grab it? Uh, you have in your hand one phenomenal book. Now, I say book, actually, it's more like a library with all sorts of different writings gathered in it. Most of it is story. Uh, there's also a whole ton of poetry, a memoir or two, some legal documents, genealogies, pithy wisdom sayings, some letters, biographies, uh, and this whole genre of literature called apocalyptic. There's so much in here. And this collection of writings was composed by a number of authors over a period of give or take approximately 1500 years. It was written in a complete different time and place to our context today in a series of different languages with a whole different cultural framework for understanding life. And yet despite all of that, this is still the best-selling book of all time. There's something about this collection of writings that we just keep coming back to. And I think, on reflection, it's probably because it's, at its core, all about the human condition. I mean, pretty much everything is in here. Love, hate, war, sex, injustice, trauma, abuse healing, mortality, doubt, unbelief, what to do with mould in your kitchen and how to tame your toddler. It's pretty much all in here. But that being said, I think we're living at this key moment, at least here in the West, where more and more people have serious problems with the Bible. Either they don't read it because they think it's boring and weird and, in all honesty, there are better things to be doing with their time. Or they read it and struggle to understand it. Or they read it and understand it, but then take issue with it. In fact, my observation would be that even within the church, there is this growing mistrust in the Bible. Increasingly, I think people see it as more of an obstacle to faith than an aid. It's sad but true. More and more people are turning into post-Bible Christians, which I would argue is just a few steps away from being post-Christian altogether. Now, bearing all of that in mind, I can think of several logical places to start off a conversation about the Bible. Like, there are all the questions that uh, us modern Western people have about it. Questions surrounding slavery, its view of women, gender, sexuality, not to mention all of the crazy miracles. And uh, I get it. Uh, I'm sceptical by nature. I understand the need to address those kinds of questions. So we could start there. It would take a little longer than I've got available to me right now, but there are great answers to all of those questions. However, I think the problem with that as an approach is it would start us off with this heart posture where we're very much the judge and the jury, and we put the Bible on trial and examine the evidence to see if it's guilty or innocent. And while perhaps some of you maybe need to go through that whole process in order to be able to trust the Bible for yourself. That is immediately putting ourselves on the defensive and implying that 
our questions are the most important thing on the table and I would humbly suggest that they are not. So we're not going to begin there. Another place to start would be with the Bible itself, like what claims does this book make about itself? But that being said, if you're one of those people who doesn't already trust in the Bible, that's pretty much a non-starter as well, because it's circular reasoning, isn't it? I mean, we don't really trust that the Bible is scripture, because that's what it claims, any more than we trust the Quran or the Book of Mormon, or I guess the Sun newspaper, because they claim, albeit in very different ways, to be a kind of scripture. So I propose that we start in a completely different place, not with all the problems that people have with the Bible, but with Jesus. Because after all, Jesus was a rabbi, wasn't he? He was a teacher. And what was he a teacher of? He was a teacher of the scriptures of his day, like he knew them inside out. He taught from them all of the time and he took issue with many people's interpretation of them. Not only that, but his thinking was saturated with the overarching storyline of the scriptures and I think it's fair to say this shaped his whole vision for life in the kingdom of God. And so as we're going to see, Jesus' view of the scriptures could not have been higher. He went around saying things like, the scriptures cannot be broken. Or in another place, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, and then he quotes from one of the Psalms. Or there was this occasion, a very famous occasion, where he said to the devil, it is written. And then comes a quote from Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God himself. And so I don't know about you, but the reason that I have a Bible in my hand right now and that I read it most days isn't because I have this odd penchant for ancient literature, but because I love and have come to trust Jesus. As my friend Andrew Wilson puts it, ultimately, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who is God, the king of the world, the crucified, risen and exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him. I've decided to follow him. And so if he acts and talks as if the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative and good and helpful and powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. And so all that being said, let's see what it is we can learn from how Jesus viewed the scriptures if you want to follow along, uh, once again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, and it's a passage where Jesus, I think, teaches us three crucially important truths about the scriptures. First one is this. For Jesus, the teaching of the whole Bible is to be deeply respected. Matthew 5 verse 17, Jesus says, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I do not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. Now just to explain, 
The Law and the Prophets, it was this common first century Jewish way of referring to the Bible of their day. The Law or the Torah was, was the first five books of the Bible. The Prophets were shorthand for pretty much the rest of what we now call the Old Testament. And so referring to all of this, Jesus says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the Law of Moses or the writings of the Prophets. Now this word abolish was used later on by Matthew to, to refer to tearing down a building. It's like the teaching of Jesus at times was so incredibly radical and subversive and countercultural that some people thought he'd come to tear up, just rip up the scriptures, just throw the whole thing out and kind of move on. And Jesus says, I categorically haven't come to do that. I'm certainly not abolishing the scriptures because, as he emphatically states over in John 10, the scripture cannot be broken. So firstly then, Jesus had the utmost respect for the scriptures. Secondly, for Jesus, the, the Bible is a story that very much reaches its climax in him. He says, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish or fulfill their purpose. Now, there's something pretty interesting going on here, or at least I think it's interesting, because you'd have thought Jesus would have said, don't think I've come to abolish them, but to obey them or to keep things the way they are. But instead, he uses this word accomplish or fulfill it's like jesus reads the scriptures not merely like a reference book or as a manual for life or as a rule book but as this story that stretches out over thousands of years which i think kind of makes sense when you do the maths because in fact less than 10 percent of the bible is made up of laws and commands a bit under 20% is a letter or a teaching, 33% is poetry, and a whopping 43%, just under half, is narrative or story. And so for Jesus, the scriptures have this whole forward motion. They're very much heading somewhere. More specifically, they're pointing forward to his coming which I think is what he's getting at when he speaks of accomplishing or fulfilling their purpose. It's all about bringing the story to its appointed goal. By way of illustration, Helen and I have just celebrated our 24th wedding anniversary. Now, what you're thinking, we've barely aged at all, uh, but don't let your mind wander that way. What I want you to see is that Back in April 1996, as we were making our vows to one another, it's like we were fulfilling our engagement. Of course, fulfillment certainly doesn't mean the end of the story, like we fortunately have remained together. But the story at that point very much entered a different phase. So the whole point of the first part of the story, our courtship, our engagement, has now been accomplished or fulfilled. Now just to underline, that doesn't mean the first part of the story is undermined or disrespected or abolished in any way. Far from it, in terms of the whole wedding illustration, the engagement ring was always intended to sit next to a wedding ring. 
And so for Jesus, the, the Old Testament scriptures kind of reach their climax in and through his life, which is, is a staggering claim to make, isn't it? He's saying, this is a story that is all leading up to me. It's all pointing towards my life and my teaching and the new reality that's breaking in through my kingdom. That is an astonishing thing to say, but that is exactly what Jesus claims. The Bible is a story that reaches its climax in him. And then thirdly, for Jesus, the Bible is very much meant to be lived out. Which is why Jesus then goes on to say in verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment, teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So it seems like there is some kind of reciprocal relationship between how you view the scriptures and how God views you, between how you treat the Bible and your whole experience of the kingdom of God. It's like God's treatment of you will mirror and mimic your treatment of the Bible. In short, if you ignore, disregard, or simply explain away even the least commandment, then Jesus says you'll be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But on the flip side, he goes on to say, anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness or your goodness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this just got very serious, didn't it? Like, if we don't get this right, Jesus says we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Essentially, he's driving home the point here that the Bible is a means to an end and the end is not mere information it's transformation Jesus is saying it's not enough to simply read the Bible and study it and grow in our understanding it's not even enough to obey it at a surface level there's something more there's something better than that which he's looking for in each and every one of us he is looking for changed behavior flowing from a changed heart and so it goes on in the Sermon on the Mount to give a whole load of instructions which build on the Old Testament law in verse 21 he says you have heard that our ancestors were told and then there's this quote from Exodus 20 you must not murder verse 27 you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery it's another quote from Exodus 20 Verse 31, you have heard the law that says, and then comes this quote from Deuteronomy, a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But as we're going to see over the next few weeks, each and every time Jesus says, you have heard this, he then goes on to add, but I tell you this. Now people often wonder how he can say that, and still claim he is not abolishing 
the law? How can he move beyond what Moses said about murder and adultery and divorce and retaliation and anger? But I suggest when you get your head around the whole nature of fulfillment, you begin to realise that the purpose of the law is actually being achieved in each of these examples that Jesus gives. You see, way back when, Moses was dealing with this hard-hearted nation who very much needed laws to protect themselves. But he also looked forward to a day when the people of God would receive new hearts and would obey the law in a far more radical way. A day when there'd be no more anger, no more lust, no more broken marriages, no more violence. And so in each of Jesus' examples, we, we get this glimpse of a kind of righteousness that goes way deeper than mere outward behaviour. It's like outward actions are not enough anymore. It's the state of our heart that really counts. It's not so much surface level behaviour, it's more about what is going on inside us. And so, in the first example about not murdering people, I'm guessing probably we're all okay with that one. But if you're sitting there all smug because, well, look, I'm not a murderer, this isn't for me, Jesus then goes in for the kill. No pun intended. He says, a heart posture of contempt for others, of spite, poison, bitterness, anger, or this arrogant condescension that thinks you're better than everyone else. That Those attitudes are every bit as bad as stabbing a literal knife into someone. And so when Jesus says he came to fulfil the law and the prophets, he's effectively saying that just as an engagement always points towards a wedding, the law and the prophets were always going to climax in a new king and a new people who obey from hearts that have been made new. Which is all well and good until we come up against some teaching in the Bible that we don't like. At that point, we have a serious choice to make. Will we define for ourselves what's good and right based on our feelings and our desires and our preferences? Or will we radically choose to ignore that and trust in God and his character and his word? Now, you don't need me to tell you that is a challenge, isn't it? Because over the last century, we've moved here in the Western world from a culture of authority worked out through things like the monarchy and government and the church and family to a culture of authenticity where it's all about being true to yourself and not telling, letting anyone tell you what to do and just trusting your feelings. And so this whole idea of living under the authority of an ancient book is just borderline absurd to a culture that defines freedom as the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, and we're probably losing that bit, just do whatever you want, whatever. And so we've thrown out thousands of years of human wisdom to say that now, in our sophistication, we know better. But perhaps what is slowly beginning to happen right now is we're being shown that maybe we don't know better. 
Maybe there is a reason why this is how it's been done for thousands of years. Maybe individualism and consumerism are not all that enlightened. Maybe it's simply Genesis 3 being played out all over again. Remember that story? It's not so much a story about a snake as the root primal temptation that every one of us faces. Namely, will I define for myself good and evil or will I acknowledge that there is a creator and I'm a creation and he knows far better than me? Could it be that our greatest need right now is not so much authenticity but rather the vulnerability that not just acknowledges how we feel but also recognises our need for help in order to change. Now don't hear me wrong, Christianity is incredibly authentic. It freely boasts in all of our weaknesses but it doesn't stop there. It also allows God's word to challenge our behaviour leading us to a place of confession and repentance and reliance on God's power in order to live a transformed life. Now, all that being said, as I wrap this up, I want you to notice what's at stake here. If you choose to reject Jesus' way of reading the Bible, and in his language you set aside one of the least of these commands and teach others accordingly, if you just pick and choose and construct your own version of the Bible that pretty much lines up with your own opinions, your bias, the culture around us, there is a warning here for you. You will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So I said before, there is some kind of a reciprocal relationship between how you treat the Bible and your eternal destiny. In short, God's treatment of you will mirror your treatment of the Bible. Which, if you think about it, kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Like, if the Bible is God's revealed wisdom for what it means to be human, and you just, in your arrogance, choose to shrug it off and explain it away and dishonour it, then don't expect God to honour you. Or if you sideline it and just push it to one side because you don't like it or don't have time for it, don't expect God to find any place for you in his kingdom. And if you don't read it and don't listen to it and don't believe it, don't expect God to speak to you. And if you ignore it or reject it, do not be surprised when you don't know a whole lot of peace, joy, comfort or hope in your life. Like I say, this is serious stuff. But I don't want to finish with a warning. I want to lay in front of you this pretty stunning invitation. If you choose to obey God's word, you'll be called great in the kingdom of God. If you follow his teaching one day at a time, and over the course of your life, you will grow and mature into a great one, a bright shining example of all that Jesus and his kingdom stand for, transformed, set free, made whole to the point that you wake up in the morning and there's this throb in your heart of love and joy and hope. That's what's on offer. So there's a warning and an invitation and a Bible in your hand, the question is, 
what are you going to do with that? 